Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 20 again. So we continue our study through this gospel. Luke 20, we'll look at verses 41 down to 44 uh, today. It was William Shakespeare who said, I would challenge you to a battle of wits, but I see that you are unarmed. I think of that because in Luke chapter 20, Jesus' opponents challenged him to a battle of wits. But after several attempts to trip him up, it was they who proved to be unarmed. And so we read in verse 26, they were unable to trap him in what they had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. And again in verse 40, no one dared ask him any more questions. Don't match wits with the Lord. Ah, but the conversation was not over. Now Jesus had some questions of his own. Let me read what he had to say. It's brief, but it's profound. Verse 41. Then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Now Jesus actually asks asks two questions here. The first is, the beginning of verse 41, how is it that say Christ is the son of David? And the second one is at the very end, uh, uh, David uh, calls him Lord. How can he be David's son? Two different questions. So that gives us two points to consider. The first one is this. You can't put Jesus in your box. You can't put Jesus in your box. You know, part of me feels sympathy for these people who, um, uh, to whom Jesus is speaking in this section. Uh, perhaps you've been where they find themselves. They were asked a simple question, a question that everybody knew the answer to. They probably wondered why they were asking, why they were asked that question. And yet before they could really respond, then another question comes that totally baffles them. In other words, Jesus kind of set them up with an easy question and then an impossible question. But Jesus was not playing games with him. He was revealing something of himself. So let's first talk about the easy question in verse 41. How is it that they say that the Christ, or the Messiah, the same word, is the son of David? Now, this question is so simple, it almost seems as if Jesus is questioning the obvious, that that the Messiah is the son of David. Of course the Messiah is the son of David. Jesus would never have questioned that. All the Old Testament promises proclaim that the Messiah will be the son of David. For example, this was original uh, God's original covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. There we read, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's God's promise to David. Then Psalm 132 confirms it. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath, that he will not rebuke. One of your descendants I will place on your throne. Promise of the Lord. Isaiah, speaking hundreds of years later, says the same kind of thing in Isaiah 6, 5. In love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it, one from the house of David, one who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. 
And of course, we all know the familiar prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and later in the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end, for he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Oh, there's no question the Messiah is promised to be the son of David. Furthermore, as Luke repeatedly recorded, Jesus is clearly a son of David, a descendant of David. In other words, he met the messianic qualifications that the Messiah had to be from the line of David. Consider how often that point has been made a few examples. When the angel Gabriel appeared to the Virgin Mary, uh, he said, You will be with child and will give birth to a son. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and his kingdom will, not, will never end. We see it also in the genealogies. In the beginning of Matthew, in the beginning of Luke, there are genealogies, both of which trace generation by generation Jesus' descent from King David and actually even beyond. In his birth, the account that Luke gives us, Mary and Joseph are uh, concerned to travel to Bethlehem, the city of David, because they are of the house and lineage of David. In fact, just back in chapter 18, a couple of chapters ago, the the blind man at, at, at Jericho heard that Jesus was coming. And how did he address him? Jesus, son of David, have mercy. And Jesus didn't say, who is he talking to? He says, stop. And he went and talked to the man. He knew. That's who he was, the son of David. So there's no misunderstanding here. Jesus, I mean, the Messiah must be a son of David. And Jesus has been demonstrated to be such a descendant, a descendant, a son of David. So what's Jesus' point then? In this obvious question about how can you say that uh, the Messiah is the son of David, what's his point? What does he want them to see? What does he want us to see? I believe he was telling them, as he tells us, that you can't put him in your little box. Let me explain. It seems that Jesus was questioning not the Messiah's promised lineage, but the nature of their messianic expectation. For those Jews, being a son of David meant much more than just having a biological connection generations later to David. It also implied having a certain quality of being David-like. You probably at some point have read First and Second Samuel, the story of David. And you, you think this David, he's, a, he's quite an interesting guy. He's, he's rugged and he's bold and he's daring and he's smart. And, he, and, and, and it seems like nothing can stop him. And King Saul tries to murder him and he can't. And, and, and he's a godly guy. And, and you go, wow, that's, no, that's, a, that's, that's a cool guy, David is. The rabbinic teaching of this day where Jesus was, there was a pretty well-defined expectation of how the Messiah would be not just biologically a descendant of David, but would be David-like. It's spelled out pretty clearly in a book called the Psalms of, so- Psalms of Solomon, which is an extra-biblical account written after Pompey conquered Jerusalem in 63 BC. And there, according to the Jewish Encyclopedia, we read how Messiah will be David-like. Let me read. 
He will first crush the unjust rulers and rid Jerusalem of and destroy the impious heathen. Then he will gather the scattered ones of Israel, distribute them through the land according to their tribes, and found his own kingdom of peace and justice. No wicked person will be tolerated in his kingdom, nor will foreigners be allowed to dwell there. He will subject the heathen nations to his rule, glorify the Lord before the whole world, and make Jerusalem pure and holy as of old. Well, make no mistake, in the minds of these Jewish peoples, calling Messiah the son of David implied that he would be a great military conqueror, that he would be an effective, skillful political nation builder, that he would be a nationalistic hero, that he would be a ruler known for a law and order in the land. Oh, they loved the truth of Psalm 110 that Jesus quoted here, that the son of David would come and would sit on the throne and with God's blessing would, would crush all of their enemies under his feet. They loved that. But that's not what Jesus was doing, was it? Jesus was not political. Jesus was not out raising an army. He was not going after the occupying Romans. He was not calling people to rise up and revolt against the tyranny and the oppression under which they lived. Instead, he was going around showing mercy to public sinners that the pious Jews despised and condemning them for their own hypocrisy. You see, no matter how many times Luke might have proven that Jesus descended from David, it didn't matter to them. For he was not acting like a Messiah would act in their view. As Fred Craddock writes, the David-like dimension of the expression had apparently taken on such military and political meanings that Jesus cannot embrace the title. For the Jews to say Jesus is Messiah meant they had to modify their understanding of Messiah in view of an understanding of Jesus. Terms and titles don't modify Jesus. Jesus modifies the terms and titles. And the problem with the messianic expectations is that they blind people to the Messiah who God sends. That's why Jesus was being rejected by the leadership of Israel. He didn't fit their expectation of what the coming son of David would look like. He didn't fit into the little box they had built, the Messiah box. And dear people, neither does he fit into your little box. Jesus has no obligation to be what you want him to be, to do what you want him to do. We've often built our little boxes of expectations, perhaps perhaps built on some little passage of scripture, but our set of expectations nonetheless. Like theirs, our expectations may be political. Quite remarkable to me how Christians are in our day, in our day whether liberal or conservative, all think and act as if Jesus is on their side. Because he cared about the poor, some believe he must be a Democrat who wants to use government to redistribute the wealth to people in need. 
or because he held people accountable for their actions and was opposed to, uh, 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 by governments of his day. Others assume he, he must be a Republican who, who wants free enterprise and small government. But Jesus is neither. You can't put him in your little political box. Of course, most of us aren't trying to do that so much as we have our own personal little expectations, the things that we want from him. So we may say, well, if he were really loving he would do what I begged him to do a hundred times. Why doesn't he answer me, though? Or if he really cared, he would give me a job. Or a wife. Or a husband. Or some children. Or a bigger house. Or somehow prosper me. But don't you see, when we do that, we're doing the exact same thing the Jews did. We're saying if he were really the son of David, he would get those Romans off our backs. But you can't put Jesus in your little box. He is the Messiah. You can't domesticate him to do your bidding. But Jesus had a second question. Let me read again verses 42 to 44. David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How can he be his son? That brings us to our second point. That Jesus is the God-man Messiah. Jesus is the God-man Messiah. The first question is very easy. Though they undoubtedly miss Jesus' concern. But Jesus' second question is truly a riddle. But this riddle which Jesus posed is worth our, 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 our uh, careful consideration. Notice up front, it's David who speaks. It says right there in the day David himself declares. David wrote Psalm 110. So David is speaking. What we notice right off is when David is speaking, there are two lords involved. The Lord said to my Lord, who are these two Lords. That's the issue. That's the riddle here. Well, the first one's pretty obvious. We can't see this in our English Bibles. You couldn't see it if you had a Greek Bible, because it's just one word for Lord. The word is kurios, and so that's how it's translated, Lord. But if you went back to Psalm 110 in your Bible, you would see that the two word, words Lord look different. The, the first word is Lord in little all cap, all capital letters, little uppercase letters. The second one is Lord capitalized but in smaller case letters. They're two different words. That first word is, is the word that, um, uh, that is, is used only of the, Lord, of, of the Lord God. It's the word Yahweh or Jehovah we call it which is a word that's never used of any human being. It's only used of, of God Almighty. That, that second word, Lord, though, so there's no question about the first word. It's God Almighty said to my Lord. Okay, so the second one, who is this my Lord? That's a more general word that means master. Master. That's the problem, though. Who's David's master? David is the greatest of all the kings, he's God's anointed king. He's God's ruler uh, 
uh, who could David be calling master? How can David call anybody Lord or master? He, and, and, and proclaim that his master would rule. That was what he did. So David must be speaking of the Messiah. For it's the Messiah who is the one who will rule over the entire world. That's the repeated promise of the Messiah. So David must be speaking of the Messiah. But David does not speak of him as inferior to himself, like, well, my son someday is going to rule. No, he doesn't talk like that. David speaks of him as his superior. God Almighty said to my Lord... That was never how you would have speak of, uh, spoken of your son, to call him your master. Indeed, David describes this Messiah as sitting on the, at the right hand of the throne of God, ruling in God's, uh, exercising God's rule over the entire earth. Now this riddle baffled Jesus' hearers. How could David's son be David's Lord? But the solution to it is unfolded quite clearly through the New Testament. The Messiah is at the same time the true descendant of David. And the Messiah is the Son of God, David's Lord. There's no other feasible solution to this riddle. The Messiah is the God-man, Jesus, David's Son, and David's Lord. In fact, in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, Jesus says that clearly about himself. He says, I quote, I, Jesus, am the root and the offspring of David. In other words, I am David's creator, the one from whom David came. And I am David's son, his offspring, the one who came from David. So why does it matter that Jesus is this God-man, Messiah? David's Lord as well as David's son. Well, it matters very much to us, folks, because only such a Messiah can deliver us. Remember the history of David, how David um, conquered and and, uh, then established and expanded the kingdom in his day, with great success, he was like the perfect warrior king. So how is it that all these years later, the people in Jesus' time were so desperate for deliverance, and they, and they ached and smarted under the tyranny and the oppression of the Romans? What happened? Well, see, their deliverance had only been external, political, military, cultural, And those things are so easily turned around. But the human situation is much more serious than that. We're fallen creatures in a fallen world. And the corruption that destroys societies is found right inside of our own hearts. The salvation, the deliverance we need is not just from some political power. But it's, it's from sin. It's from ourselves. But who could bring that kind of deliverance? David couldn't. David was a sinful man himself. 
Indeed, his life was a testimony to the depth and the seriousness of the human condition. And if David, a man after God's own heart, would not be enough to deliver us, who would? Only the God-man Messiah, the one who is both David's son and David's divine Lord in one person. This was the explanation set forth in the 11th century by a man named Anselm of Canterbury in his book Cor Deus Homo, or Why the God-Man. Centuries later, his formulations were unpacked in the Heidelberg Catechism. It's found in Lord's Days 5 and 6. Some of you memorized as young people. Rather than reading all those quotes to you, though, let me just explain a little bit the reasoning of why do we need this God-man to deliver us. Uh, Anselm's reasoning, the Heidelberg Catechism's reasoning, the biblical reasoning. First of all, we need that because we have to understand how serious our problem is. We're in trouble because of the seriousness of our sin. The seriousness of our sin is determined by who is sinned against. Now, my simple little corny illustration for this is always the same. I've told you this before, but I'll use it again. If you get mad at me and come up here and punch me in the nose, what's going to happen? I'm going to bleed, and I'm going to probably be hurt, and I'm probably going to be a little upset and disgusted at you, but basically not much is going to happen. But let's say that our president is coming through town and you don't like him very much and somehow you get through all the uh, layers of security and you just come up and punch him in the nose. What's going to happen? You are going to jail. Same person, committed both offenses. The, the, The act was exactly the same. What's the difference? The seriousness of the offense is based on who is sinned against. So who have we sinned against? We've sinned against the Holy One, our Creator, the infinite God. That means we have created an infinite debt, an unlimited debt of sin. For our sin was not just against one another, but our sin was against God. So how can we be delivered from such an infinite debt of sin? We can't pay for it. For by nature we're finite, we're limited. How many good deeds would it take to pay off an infinite debt if you're a finite person? How many numbers do you have to add up before you get to infinity? Well, there's no limit. You can't add enough finite numbers to ever get to infinity. You can't do enough finite deeds to ever pay an infinite debt. So we can't pay it for ourselves, nor can our friends pay it, because they have this same equally impossible kind of debt. Sacrificing some dumb beast, as they did in the Old Testament, that's not actually going to pay for our sin, because it's not this animal's fault. It's a human debt. Nor can God just look the other way and say, I'm going to pretend I just didn't see that now. Because for God to just do that makes him an 
unrighteous judge. It's tech, it, it compromises his own character, his integrity. So we're in a desperate situation. We have an unlimited debt to God, and we have no way of paying. No way of paying. Uh, but God, in his mercy, provided a way of salvation. He sent his son, the infinite, righteous, eternal son, and he was born a man, a descendant of David, a man named Jesus. This Jesus, the God-man, Messiah, is our hope. Why did he come? He himself tells us that he came to give his life as a ransom for sinners. You see, he's the only one that can pay the debt. And he came to pay it. He's the only one that can deliver us because he can pay an infinite debt because he is God the Son, David's master. And he can pay man's debt because he is a man, our human representative. This unique God-man Jesus is the Christ who delivers us. Now, unfortunately, these Jewish leaders never understood what Jesus was teaching them here. All they could imagine was a David-like conqueror, as they had known hundreds of years before. But Jesus, the God-man, has now been revealed very clearly to us. In fact, we have even more reason to believe than they did. For Jesus, the man who died on the cross, has been demonstrated to be the Son of God by rising from the dead. Jesus, the God-man, died in our place rose from the dead to show, to prove who he is. And whether you've known and believed in this Jesus all your life or only just now understood the significance of who he is and what he has done, this Jesus, this God-man Messiah is our only hope of ever having our sins paid for and being delivered from our desperate human situation. We tend to hear only what we want to hear. These Jewish leaders knew Psalm 110 very well. They probably could quote it. They looked forward to the day when their enemies were going to be crushed underfoot. But they missed the fact that the Messiah of Psalm 110 might be different than they expected. And when that Messiah stood in their presence and explained what the Messiah actually was to be, son of David and David's Lord, they would not listen. They would not submit to him. They hated him for it. They thought he was crazy. They rejected him out of hand. Do not follow their willful ignorance. You cannot put the Messiah in your little box of expectations. He is the God-man Messiah, this Jesus. He alone can deliver us. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your great plan of salvation, which we can describe a little bit in a few words, and yet we cannot comprehend. We cannot comprehend the Trinity. We cannot comprehend how the Son could become man. We cannot comprehend how a human and a divine Son could become one person.
person, the God-man. We cannot comprehend, Lord, how sin can be atoned for. We cannot comprehend how you could raise someone from the dead. Lord, there's so much we cannot get our minds around, but we admit we have no hope, Lord, but this, that you've sent your son, the son of David, to be our Messiah, David's Lord, and to bring us to glory. Give us the faith to trust you and not turn away. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.